0: Hi! How you doing? Great to see all of you. Uh, I just want you to know, Journey, that you are the best. You just are. You are the best, and I love getting the privilege of being one of your pastors, so thanks for that privilege. If you're a guest, maybe you're around here for the first time, we're particularly delighted to have you, and we pray that everything that happens in this room today uh, might help you encounter God in fresh and even surprising ways ways so we're in this series working through the series that we call famous last words and our goal is to try to get our hearts and heads around the last book of the bible the revelation which can be as you saw in the video just a wee bit trippy can it eugene peterson's writings has uh, really helped shape and sort of inspire the series this message as well Today, we're going to embrace sort of a heavy topic. We're going to tackle the Revelation's last word on evil, and it's going to be a little intense, but I want to tell you in advance that it finishes in this place of really, really profound hope, because you see, John, in his vision from the book of Revelation, he paints for us this incredibly exuberant, profoundly hopeful picture, and that's where it all lands. And I've been praying that every single one of us would go out of here today incredibly motivated to stand up very, very tall and proclaim Jesus very, very loudly in the face of all manner of evil that we encounter day in and day out in this world that we're walking around in. And I know, I'm certain, that for lots and lots of us, that seems like a nearly impossible task, doesn't it? I know that for lots and lots of us, the evil that is so incredibly prevalent in our world today, it has us beaten down, broken down, and wondering, along with a great theologian named Annie Dillard, one of the great theological questions of all time, what in the Sam Hill is going on here anyway? Really, what's going on? And if you're asking that question, I want you to know that you're not alone in that question. Because you see, even as John, the author of the Revelation, even as he sat exiled on the prison island of Patmos, his contemporaries, the people who were a part of the churches that he was charged with pastoring, they were living in the midst of the most chaotic, evil world that you can imagine, not at all unlike the one we find ourselves living in today. In the day of John, Roman armies were swarming, Christians were wondering, even aloud, if the kingdom of God was really inaugurated by Jesus Christ, what's the deal with all the Roman armies? What's going on? We thought Jesus' gospel proclaimed love for the entire world, they're thinking, and yet all around them they saw Romans putting people who believed that message in prison and killed them on Roman crosses day in and day out. They're wondering, why in the world did Jesus live? Why did he die? Why did he suffer? Why did he rise from the dead? And yet, even in the face of that, the world then, just as now, was getting worse. It wasn't getting any better. It was unraveling at the seams. And the question of evil is very often our first question, isn't it? What in the world is going on here? How do we make sense of all of this? But I want you to know that the question of evil should not be our first question. It just shouldn't be our first question. Just by way of perspective, have you ever noticed that when we experience evil in any form, we perceive that that's all there is? Evil has this strange way of blotting out everything else. Uh, Think about, maybe you've had a toothache at some point in your life. Think about that time when you had that toothache. I guarantee that what happened was that you forgot in the midst of your toothache that the rest of your body was working quite magnificently, wasn't it? You just had this aching tooth, but it sort of overshadowed everything else. Think about the last time you stubbed your toe in a dark room on a piece of furniture. Remember that? I guarantee that in that moment of great pain to your large toe, you were not thinking, man, I'm so thankful that my elbow bends so incredibly effortlessly. Because evil, see, has a way of blotting out every other thing except the magnificent and ruling Christ. Because you see, Christ towers over everything, including evil. Jesus Christ cannot, will not, be blotted out by anything. And we pick up the story in the book of Revelation today, Revelation chapter four. If you were to read that sometime, you would see that John was caught up in heaven. He was worshiping God in the most exquisite worship experience you could possibly imagine. He's pouring out his heart to God. And then we turn the page to Revelation chapter five, starting in verse four, and look at what happens. Then I, that's John, began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll And read it. So here's John. He's caught up in heaven and he's worshiping God in this unbelievable worship experience. And then he begins to weep bitterly. He begins to despair because there isn't anyone who's worthy to unseal the scroll and proclaim God's word to him. And he's distraught by that reality. But then the text goes on. Follow along with me, if you will. Just so you know, this gets a little trippy. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. This is the trippy part. He had seven horns and seven eyes. Whoa, that represents the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, you were worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood is ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. And so while lots and lots of us, we're caught up in asking the question, is there meaning in the evil chaos that is our history, Christ is in the midst of answering, you better believe it. You'd better believe it. And it's Jesus Christ, check this out, it's Jesus Christ himself who presents the meaning of the evil chaos of history to us. Lots and lots of times we think that there is some gaping disconnect between our worship of God and what's happening out there in the midst of history, and Jesus says, uh-uh, no way. Instead, Jesus points us every time to the correspondence that exists between everything that happens in our worship, whether it's corporate or whether it's private, and every single last thing that happens in the course of history. And so you see what that means? is While the world is tumbling out this really massive mess, and that's what we would call it, wouldn't we? This massive mess, wars and famines and murders and accidents, right alongside and in the midst of sunrises and sunsets and still waters and lilies of the field and green pastures, we, the people of God, we're convinced that in and through prayer and praise, listening and believing, that there's meaning. There's actually meaning in all of the apparent chaos. And we're able to actually read good news in the midst of this mess. That, folks, is only possible through the proclamation, the declaration of Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world for you, for me, for all of humanity. And Jesus says, let me show you. And he's gonna proclaim for us God's meaning in the evil of history, in really what is a seven-point sermon. Jesus is going to preach a seven-point sermon, and just so you know, I'm not going to cover all seven points. I put everything on your notes page. You can do some of it on your own. Have at it. Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Let's check it out. As I watched, the lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. Then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked up and saw a white horse standing there, Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, "'Come.' Then another horse appeared, this time a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. When the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, "'Come.' I looked up and saw a black horse and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, the kind that you weigh something on." And I heard a voice from among the four living beings say, A loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. And don't waste the olive oil and wine. And the lamb broke the fourth seal. I heard the fourth living being say, Come. I looked up and saw a horse whose color was pale green. Ever seen one of those? Whoa. Its rider was named Death. His companion was the grave. And these two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, And there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll. And all, check this out, all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to survive? And so seal by seal, another aspect of God's meaning is presented so that one by one by one, all of the evil of history is ordered and arranged so that we can understand, so that we can get the good news. Those first four unsealings, they reveal for us four horses. Why in the world horses? Because the horse is a battle animal, isn't it? And we really, at the core of ourselves, we know that the whole of human history is a history of warfare, isn't it? The life of faith in Jesus Christ is especially about warfare, isn't it? History, at its very base level, is just a long sequence of battles, good and evil, pitched in conflict. And whether guns are blazing or not, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are in conflict. To be human is to be at war. And there's some questions that followers of Jesus Christ have to wrestle through. And they go something like this. Follow me here. Is God's love and redemption active in the world in which we're living right now? A world where it seems like everything is a mess. What in the Sam Hill is going on here? Or is God's love and redemption active? Or do we have to develop some sort of other plane of consciousness to participate in them and then we sort of have to pop from that plane of consciousness back down to the ordinary things of this life and then make do with all that the very best we know how to do is God's love and redemption somewhere ahead and it'll be accomplished somewhere out there in the future Well, for now we just sort of have to put up with things just the way they are, use whatever survival techniques we're able to pick up along the way to keep our faith alive, burning brightly until then. Is God's love and redemption, is it working right now? Are war and famine and sickness, are they the supreme realities of this life? Or is it peace and bounty and health that are central to this life? Which is it? What is it? And we all, we have to wrestle through those questions, and I want to show you in just a few minutes, Jesus actually answers those questions for us, and it's quite potent. Christ preaches, and as he preaches, we learn that the first element in the war that is history, you know who it is? It's him. It's Jesus Christ. Look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. I looked up and saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow. A crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. That is our Jesus. Now some people will disagree with me and say that is not Jesus. That, in my view, is our Jesus. And he is in history, and he is ruling, and he is conquering. And the only chance that we ever have of making sense of the evil that is human history is to begin first and foremost with Christ. We talked about it in the very first message in this whole series. Christ is the first word. He isn't just an afterthought that God sort of brought in as a last-ditch rescue operation after sin wreaked all of its havoc. No. Jesus is first. And Jesus conquers. He has always conquered quite fiercely even. And this world is at war. And our Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend, he is first onto the battlefield every single time. First onto the battlefield. I used to be on staff of this really great church where weekend after weekend, we pastors would sort of gather informally in the lobby after everyone else had long gone home and we'd ask each other the question, did Jesus win today? Did Jesus win today? And it was really a rhetorical question because at the end of the day, we always knew the answer. Every single weekend, it was yes, he did win. But what we must remember, church, is that Jesus doesn't just win in church on the weekends, Jesus wins every single day. He wins. He wins. Now, you pick up a copy of the Bozeman Daily Chronicle or any other newspaper for that matter, and you will not read about how big Christ's wins are, will you? You don't find them there. Now, I guarantee you will find out how big the 49ers' wins are when you pick up the newspaper, any newspaper, especially today as they play the Detroit Lions. Jeez! All of a sudden, Detroit's winning. Like, they've been losing since the beginning of time, and now the Lions fans are coming out like, Lions! Like, really? No, fair weather fans. Go Niners. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was... We get back on task. You pick up the paper, and you don't read about how big Christ wins are, will you? You just won't. Try this on for size. Will you think about the last seven days of your life? Just sort of play back the video screen of your mind and think about the host of bad, even evil stuff that you ran into personally. Think about that. And what I guarantee is that your emotional response to all of that evil stuff isn't just like, okay, it's okay, Jesus won all that, right? It's not. We have quite the opposite emotional response, don't we? But what I want you to know and what you must always remember is that what we see with our eyes, what we feel in our guts, do not tell us the entire truth, do they? Because the truth is that Christ rules, Christ conquers, Christ wins every single time. And it's fascinating to me that in the Revelation we see Jesus a couple of different times riding on these white horses waging war. And when we read the Gospels, we don't ever see Jesus on white horses waging war, do we? What do we see instead in the Gospels? We see Jesus riding rather pathetic little, what, donkeys. Hardly a battle animal. We see Jesus as the slain lamb of God in the Gospels. That's hardly a victorious image, is it? And then you run all that forward and we see at the end of Christ's life, we see him mocked and brutalized, nailed to a Roman cross where he was killed. Hardly a conquering end, is it? And it should cause us to ask, like, what's up with that? Why the white horse all of a sudden? And what we must come to grips with is that the white horse is not just some signal that Jesus is giving up on donkeys and lambs and crosses and he's now suddenly taking up horses and spears and scepters. Instead, this image of Jesus on a white horse is the validation, it is the very proof that the means that Christ chose to accomplish his will, to accomplish his salvation, the donkeys and the lambs and the crosses, are in fact, despite appearances, victorious. Jesus on the white horse waging war, it's not like a change of strategy, rather it's proof positive that he wins. He wins. And Jesus' sermon rolls on. And we see that he gathers up everything that opposes him. Seals two, three, and four are broken, starting in verse three of Revelation six. When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, come. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword, the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. When the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, come. I looked up and saw a black horse and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings say, a loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. Don't waste the olive oil and wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, come. And I looked up and I saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death and his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. That is a picture, folks, of our world and the intrinsic evil that is contained within it. And evil is seen through the lens of these three horsemen. One of war, that's the red horse. One of famine, that's the black horse. One of sickness unto death, the pale green horse. And you can think about those horses like this. War is social evil, isn't it? Famine is ecological evil, isn't it? And sickness is biological evil, isn't it? War attacks the goodness of the community. Famine violates and ravages God's provision. Sickness destroys and wastes the bodies that God gave us. And when we look, we see those three common evils around us every single day, don't we? But even as we see them, I want you to know that they're in disguise. They're in disguise, and they're disguised in such a way that we very often see them just as being normal. Often we even see what's evil, we see it as being good. For example, we dress war up and masqueraded as patriotism a bunch of the time, don't we? We call war just a struggle for freedom, don't we? Famine, you know what we call that? We disguise famine as a, quote, higher standard of living. We just have a higher standard of living than them, and if they just work harder, well, sickness we disguise with technology. And little by little, the evil introduces conflict, greed, deceit, both socially and personally. And that evil begins to unwind the creation, subvert the creation, especially in the design, the redemptive design of the creation. And these evils, we just call them, quote, normal, but they sneak up on us. We're like the frog in the kettle, right? You put a frog in a kettle of cool water and you turn the stove on underneath it, just on very, very, very low. And the frog is just happy as a clam in there. And then the water gets warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer and warmer. And the next thing you know, you're eating frog legs gross. But the evils, they sneak up on us like the frog in the kettle, presenting really what is a benign appearance, and we subtly accept them just as being normative, when that's not even close to the truth. Let's pick on war. We dress war up in the guise of competition, don't we? We teach our kids not to get what they want through cooperation. We teach them to get what they want through competition. James 4, 1 and 2. What's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. And every so often, the overabundance of those attitudes that James describes in the pages of Scripture, they achieve a critical mass, and what happens? The world goes to war. And I don't care how you dress war up, glamorizing it as patriotic, rationalizing it as just. War is the red horse. War is bloody. War is cruel, evil. War is horrid. And I want you to know this war is opposed by Christ. War is opposed by Christ. Jesus does not sit on the red horse. And in the sin stained world where people refuse God's lordship, where they reject Christ's salvation again and again and again, war becomes the road to mastery and glory in the eyes of humanity. But Christ battles against war. And in the end, the white horse conquers the red horse. Now, I can't take the time today to treat the other two horses like I would like to, so I would just have to do a drive-by of them. But suffice it to say, just get this, please. If I treated them the way I'd like to treat them, we would all, together, we would be stunned by how disruptive Christ's ways are compared to what we've become accustomed to as just being normal. If we unpacked them, we would sort of be in shock that we've taken some things and called them normal when Jesus says this is not even close to normal. I know some of the things I just said about war is disruptive to some of you, maybe even a whole bunch of you, but also know that that's not my view, that's Christ's view. And church, Jesus Christ never calls us just to live out what's normal. Being a follower of Jesus Christ, being a disciple of Christ means what? It means we swim against the prevailing, culturally accepted, normal societal currents because that's who Jesus Christ is is that's what he does that's what he calls us his followers to do you know that being a christian is actually quite counter-cultural at least it should be in its true expression and so we see just like the red horse of war the black horse of famine it does its evil and in the face of the evil of famine which i'll just summarize by saying this that famine is what we we have most of what we don't need and almost nothing of what we do need that's famine we have most of what we don't need, almost nothing of what we do need, and in the face of that evil, Christ is redeeming, because that's who Christ is, and he's restoring the earth, and he's restoring its occupants, us, to really a sense of balanced sanity, teaching us to live by grace, not by greed. It's grace in God's economy, and then along comes the pale green horse of sickness, and it rends its evil. And he'd summarize the pale green horse of sickness by saying that sickness is the condition in which our bodies are so weak, they're so run down, they're so impaired that we cannot be effective temples of God's holiness. We can't be used by God to love with his love and bear witness to his saving grace because our bodies, well, they're just a pile. Broken down, worn down, trashed. And in the face of that evil, Christ rends his healing, Christ redeems. And just in case you're wondering, it's Christ's healing that has the very last word, and you know what that word is? It's called resurrection. It's called resurrection. And the four horsemen, they're summoned. This all-powerful command from the throne, the conquering, victorious Christ, you know what he does? He rips the disguises from the three evil horsemen, and he shows their true colors. And now we're a little worried, aren't we? Because it's like three on one who's going to win that deal? And then there's more. The fifth unsealing, that's the evil of religious persecution. The sixth, the evil of natural catastrophe. Terrible things that happen in nature. And then at the conclusion of that sixth unsealing, what we have laid out on the table for us is an accounting of every single aspect of evil that any person could possibly ever encounter. Social strife, ecological disaster, sickness under death, religious persecution, natural catastrophe. They're all there. Nothing we ever experience as evil goes unnoticed, unacknowledged, unaccounted for. It's all there, declared by Jesus in the preached meaning of history. It's all there. And it's pretty gross. And then Revelation chapter 6, it ends with a question that demands an answer. And in the words of the New American Standard Translation of the Bible, Revelation 6, 17, asks this question, who can stand? Who can stand? And we have this normal expected answer to that question in our heads. The answer is no one, right? What Jesus has just proclaimed for us is the end of the world has come. History is falling apart at the seams. Everything that is supposed to have been tied down has come loose. The formerly precise movements of the sun, moon, and stars, they're twirling in chaos. Every single thing by which humanity gets our bearings, it's unraveled. Who can stand? No one can stand. No one is capable of standing under those circumstances. No king, no general, no athlete, no one. Who can stand? So we think we know the answer, right? No one. But the answer that we get is a complete and utter surprise, So much so that the receipt of the answer is so urgent, it's so important, that the much anticipated seventh unsealing is delayed until we have the answer. Revelation 7, verse 1 and 11. Watch this. Then I saw four angels, and what are they doing? They're standing. Then I saw four angels, and they're standing. And all the angels, as a matter of fact, were standing around the throne. Who can stand? Well, the angels can. God's messengers, the one who deliver his counsel and carry out his bidding, they stand. They're not intimidated by the evil horsemen on the fields of history. And as devastating as all the evil appears and feels, it doesn't cause a single flutter of fear or stumbling or hesitation among the angels. They're standing rock solid. Now buckle in, watch this. Revelation 7, starting in verse 9. After this, this is John writing, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, and what are they doing? They're standing as well. Whoa. And they're standing in front of the throne before the Lamb, and they're clothed in white robes, and they held palm branches in their hands, and they're shouting with a great word, salvation comes from our God, who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Church, do you know who that is, standing? That's us. That's followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. We who have given our hearts and given our lives to him and we're standing and that is remarkable. And I can tell right now that I'm way more excited about this than you are. But let me explain why I'm so enthralled by this. I asked a few minutes ago these questions that we all have to wrestle through. Is God's love and redemption, is it active in the world Do we have to develop some other sort of plane of consciousness to be able to participate in that? And then we sort of have to come back down here into the ordinary, quote, real world things of life, make do with all that the best way we know how. Is God's love and redemption somewhere ahead? Is it going to be accomplished someday out in the future? And for now we just sort of have to tolerate things just the way they are and use these survival techniques so that our faith can endure. Is God's love and redemption is it active, is it working now? Is it war? Is it famine? Is it sickness that are the supreme sort of normal realities? Or are peace and bounty and health, are they the centerpiece of this? What, what is it? And my excitement gets almost palpable around this because it's right here at this point where we get the answer to all of that. And it's this. What we've come, folks, to call the, quote, real world, the world that we're all walking around in right now, the one right out those doors, the one filled with pride and persecution and disease and disaster, what I want you to hear is that that isn't actually the real world. That's a little countercultural. That world of power and status and guns and self-help is not the real world. It isn't even close to being the real world. And that thing that we call the real world, right out those doors, you know what's happening to it? It's doomed, and it's dying. And do you know what the last words of that world are? Who can stand? And the world is crumbling. We see it on the pages of the Revelation. it's crumbling. And John shows us this reality that while it is much less visible, it is so much more solid. And folks, it exists. It exists right now, it exists today, and it is impenetrable by any form of evil, and it, folks, is the life of faith in Jesus Christ, and that, church, is our reality. That's our reality. That is our real world, which means that in the face of every attendant evil that you can possibly imagine, angels stand, and so do we, the church of Jesus Christ. We stand because our actual reality isn't the sum total of the evil reality we live in the midst of every single day. There is more than just the quote real world that we walk around in much, much more. And church, get this, God has empowered and God has invited and God has challenged you and me to stand in the face of evil. Why? Because he has a mission for us to be about. He calls us day in and day out to be his hands and his feet and his voice and to actually bring his redemption to everyone and everything. He's asked and called and invited us to stand in the face of every evil we encounter and shout out at the top of our lungs, if need be, to the world around us, this isn't all there is. God desperately loves you. He longs for you to love him with every single thing that you are. And he loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to make the way for you to be redeemed back to him, made new and whole the way he intended from the beginning of time. Jesus has asked you and me to stand in the face of evil and be part of adding to the beauty that he is in the process of bringing. Invite you to go to prayer if you would and just press in with the Lord and listen to Him, interact with Him, commune with Him around what's going on inside of you right now. What's He doing in you? you remain in this posture of prayer and listening to God I just sort of want to talk over the top of all that I want to talk to two groups of folks as we wrap up our time together first I want to talk to you who call yourselves followers of Jesus Christ Christians I'm just going to ask you real straight up because I think God's asking you are you going to stand in the face of evil are you going to stand are you going to be Jesus' hands and feet and voice? Or are you going to bring his redemption to everyone and everything possible? Are you going to partner with God on the mission that he's made you for? Are you going to invite everyone in your world to follow Jesus with everything they are? Are you going to take Jesus, who is the remedy to our sin problem, and are you going to tell everyone you know how they can know him like you know him? to stand and if that's your commitment today would you just cement that with God right now and if you're moved to stand physically I'd invite you to do it just say yep I'm gonna stand tell him in your own words you're gonna make his mission your mission Way to go. People all across the room just saying, yep, I'm gonna stand. Way to go. And then maybe you're a person who doesn't yet know Jesus as your savior and boss. I want to invite you to make that life-altering, eternity-altering decision today. Jesus is inviting you right now to stop running away from him, cease rebelling against him, and just to give your whole life to him. He wants to forgive you. He wants to wash you clean in the shed blood of Jesus Christ who died so that you could live with him now and forevermore. And if that's your choice today, just express that to God. Just say, yep. gotta get it. I'm a sinner. Everything in my life has been in rebellion against you and I thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. And then Jesus, thank you for taking my place and dying to set me free from life and eternity apart from you. Here's my heart, Jesus. Here's everything I am. Wash me clean. Make me new by the power of your death, burial, and resurrection. I'm yours, God. I love you. And if you're a person who's stepping into faith in Christ today, I want you to know that's the single biggest decision of your whole life. It's such a big deal that I want to acknowledge that decision with you today and so if you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ this is bold I know I'm just going to ask you if you stepped into faith in Jesus Christ will you just stand up right now and say yes just stand to your feet and say yep I'm declaring that yeah way to go yes yes I'm saying yes with you way to go Jesus, we know that the world is evil. We feel it. Evil happens to us. We even sometimes commit it ourselves. But God, that's not our heart. That's not our desire. Our desire is to partner with you in bringing your hope and your life, your redemption to the whole world because we want the whole world to know that it's you. That this life is about you. That history only makes sense inside of and because of you. It's you. Jesus, move our hearts, move our feet, move our mouths to declare you in every way that we know how. The scripture says your heart is that none would perish, that none would spend eternity apart from you. Make that our heart, God. Break our heart at the plight of the lost. Set us about your mission. May your Holy Spirit fuel and energize everything around that for us as we bring your life, as we bring your hope, as we bring you, Jesus.